All right, friends. I have two observations. Number one, uh, this is Labor Day weekend, so let's just say we know who the real Christians are today. <laughs> and number two, I know that you have no options, so it's not flattering that there's at least a, a kind of a big crowd here on a Labor Day weekend. I just want to make those, those uh, two observations. I'm going to leave time at the end, hopefully for some questions, so if you have them, jot them down. By the way, I'm Zach Hicks. I'm still new here. Some of you are getting to know me. So excited to be a part of this. So excited to do this kind of one-off class for the Dean's class on this low Sunday. I think he, uh, Andrew just thought, hey, if I say anything heretical, there's not many people that are going to be here, and it's going to be just fine anyway. So um, totally glad that you all are here. I'm going to be talking a lot over actually the next semester about this guy and about what we do with worship at Advent in particular. In fact, at the end, I'm going to tell you about a class that I'll be teaching for nine weeks in the fall. Mostly, I was going to do something different, but many of you have asked me, actually, if I would help walk us through why we do what we do at the Advent with the prayer book, and uh, what is all this, why are we doing it, what's the ritual, what are the words that we say, kind of almost exegeting our worship together. And so that's what we're going to do starting October 23rd is we'll walk through the prayer book together and hopefully it'll be really fun. Uh, hopefully it'll also be really deeply meaningful. And my, my hope as a result of this class and as a result of just the kind of ministry of teaching that I know God's called me to here at this wonderful parish is that our worship would be enriched and that as a result of us learning together more about what it is, we can actually engage it in a way that not only tickles our minds, but grabs our hearts and pulls from us. Uh, so I'm here today to talk about Thomas Cranmer's surprisingly relevant vision for 21st century worship. And we talk a lot about this guy here. He was born in 1489. And he died a martyr's death, burned at the stake in 1556 for believing and proclaiming and championing the belief that salvation is of the Lord 100% and of us 0%. I am convinced that's ultimately why he died. He would love that moment in our service when we sing Isaiah's canticle, surely it is God, God who saves me. He was the master architect of the first formal Christian worship services to ever appear in English. Think about this. Cranmer, because worship was not in English at all in anywhere in the world before Cranmer set it to English. So Cranmer really did set the tone for all of English-speaking worship as we know it today. That's a really important fact and observation. I'm talking about every, every aspect of worship that is sung or spoken in English across denominations today has to somehow trace their lineage back to what Cranmer did in this era. So he's a really important figure to understand and to study. And what he did with the prayer books is really important to understand and study. He was a voracious reader. He, like me, was a book hoarder and an addict of books. He loved it. He was a first-class intellect, fluent in several languages, and well-studied. He was a careful rebel. Now, look at this beard, all right? 
I will tell you, there's actually, it's, there's, there's a, a kind of situational reason why he has that beard in this portrait, but there's a theological reason. The situational reason that he stated was that when King Henry died, the crazy, but uh, the king to whom he was loyal to, died, he said he was growing that beard out in mourning. But in actuality, what was going on in the time of the Reformation was that the priests who would identify themselves with reformational teaching were growing beards as if to say we're different from the other priests at that time. So it's actually a distinctive of being a reformational preacher and priest that you grew a beard. I think that's pretty cool, especially for hipsters nowadays. They just love that stuff. <laughs> he was a passionate man. He was in touch with emotions. I think that's something that we may not realize when we think about prayer book worship, that the architect of it was someone who was deeply in tune with human emotions. Hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about that. And he was a compassionate man. He had a reputation among everyone, among everyone of being way too kind, way too forgiving of his enemies. It was a reputation that preceded him so much that even Shakespeare, when he places Cranmer into his play, that's the thing that he notes about Cranmer, is that he forgives his enemies. So this was a man that, that was kind of extraordinary, that, that we only understand in part. So Thomas Cranmer. I love Thomas Cranmer. In fact, I have a serious man crush <laughs> on Thomas Cranmer. I'm kicking myself that I didn't name one of my 372 sons Thomas Cranmer Hicks. I kind of got onto him after they were all born, and so it just sort of it took over. Uh, but the more I've studied Thomas Cranmer, the more I've found his voice uniquely relevant to worship in the 21st century, the more I've studied what he did with the reform of worship in the 16th century, the more I feel like 500 years later, his ideas are new and helpful and wonderful ideas. And it's interesting that we may be surprised, being directly in the lineage of Cranmer, what he has to offer us at the Advent much much more the rest of the world. At Advent, we talk about our four hearts. We talk about the things that sort of light our fire as a church, the thing that, that makes our heart beat. Number one, we talk about a heart for the gospel. And number two, we talk about a heart for those who have not heard the gospel. Number three, we talk about a heart for those who have been burned by the church. That's what we really have a heart for. And number four, we have a heart for the city of Birmingham. I will tell you that as I study Cranmer, I find his heart beating very much to the same pulse here. Now, of course, not Birmingham, but for, for his own culture, that as he planned worship for his culture, his people, he thought a lot about the ordinary person in the pew and the way that worship would hit them and would receive them. And that's precisely what I want to dive into today is uh, just checking that out and tracing that. And the way we're going to do it is through his preface to his 1549 Book of Common Prayer. So this revolution that happened in England, when the, the English people, for the first time, it was issued by order of the king, 
that they would all worship in their native language as opposed to Latin. For the first time in history, English speakers got worship in their own tongue. And so Cranmer sets forth this book of common prayer. And at the beginning, he writes the manifesto, the preface, the reason for doing it. He talks about what they're responding to and why he made the edits he did, why things are the way they are. And you'll find it funny and fascinating as we kind of go through a little bit of this. Really funny. Uh, and maybe just a tad too uncomfortably relevant. I want to go through this, and then what I want to do is pick out ideas and concepts and summarize them in seven short ways. But let's listen to this preface. It's a bit old English-y, uh, but we prayer book people are kind of used to that anyway a little bit. But let's hear it. So, there was never anything, this is how it begins, this is a wonderful way to begin, by the way. There was never anything by the wit of man so well devised, so surely established, which in the continuance of time hath not been corrupted. He's talking about worship, you know? He's saying something good, we always have a way of messing it up and making it go bad, right? As among other things, it may plainly appear by the common prayers in the church commonly called the divine service. Those two words we're going to come back to because they aren't without consequence, all right? And they have something to preach and speak to us. But let's move on. The first original and ground whereof of the divine service, if a man would search out by the ancient fathers, he shall find that the same was not ordained, but of a good purpose and for a great advancement of godliness. Okay, several things he's got going on here. Number one, he's saying, we need to go back to what the early church did. You know, it's so funny. In every generation where, even ours, where, where people are crying out for reform of worship, they're always want to disentangle, dis, they always want to disentangle themselves from the present. And say, so we need to go back to the ancient sources. And it's interesting that at the Reformation, at this time, Cranmer wanted the same thing. And the reformers wanted the same thing. And when they thought about reforming worship, they were like, we've got to go back to the Bible and back to what the early church did. Okay? So that was very much Cranmer's perspective on what he was doing in architecting the book of common prayer. But it was not only just for some historical value of going back to the early church. It actually was for a great advancement of godliness. Like, we want this thing to bear fruit. We want this thing to actually cause people to love God and love their neighbor better. This has very practical implications, right? For they so ordered the matter that all the whole Bible, this is the early church when they thought about worship, that all the whole Bible or the greatest part thereof should be read over once in the year, intending thereby that the clergy, and especially as such were ministers of the congregation, should by often reading and meditation of God's word be stirred up to godliness themselves and be more able to exhort others by wholesome doctrine and to confute them that were adversaries of the truth. You see, one of the things he says is we've gotten away from the Bible and you know what we need more of in worship? Just the scriptures. We need to hear it more. Because there was a time when throughout the course of a year, the people of God actually heard almost the whole Bible read, he said. And guess what? 
when the Bible goes forth, when the word of God goes forth, it stirs up godliness in us, you know? That was the aim, that was the objective. Give them the scriptures and then watch the fruit, watch the fruit come. And further, that the people, by the daily hearing of the Holy Scripture read in the church, should continually profit more and more in the knowledge of God and be the more, I love this line, inflamed with the love of his true religion. Be the more inflamed. Passion. Worship for Cranmer was a very passionate enterprise. Hearing the word of God was a very moving thing. It actually stirred hearts, grabbed affections. It did stuff. It didn't, it didn't look boring. It didn't feel boring. It felt like fire in your soul. And moreover, this is, I mean, this is a preface, like, and further, and moreover, and further, you know, there's all these, all these punches. Whereas St. Paul would have such language spoken to the people in the church as they might understand. He's basically saying Paul would have people understand what's going on in worship, right? And have profit by hearing the same. The service in this church of England, these many years, have been read in Latin to the people, and they understand it not, so that they have heard with their ears only, and their hearts, their spirit and mind have not been edified thereby. Cranmer was really interested in everybody understanding what was going on in worship. It should be intelligible, understandable, so that people can be edified, right? Moreover, the number and hardness of the rules. Okay, so many of us feel like our prayer book has a lot of rules in them already, and that there's a, a number of them, and that they're very hard. You must realize that the thing Cranmer edited had way more way more. There were many of them, and they were hard. The number and hardness of the rules of worship and the manifold changings of the service was the cause that to turn the book, this is funny, that to turn the book only was too hard and intricate a matter that many times there was more busyness to find out what should be read than to read, uh, read it when it was found out. Okay, don't many of us feel like this in worship? That sometimes I have to flip so much back and forth that it's, it's harder just to find what it is than to actually engage it, right? And Cranmer very much sympathized with what you feel, interestingly enough. I will tell you, just as a total side, that's one of the reasons that we spend so much trying to put everything into one leaflet for us, is we're trying to get closer so that we can actually get, get through the flipping and toward the actual engagement of God with these words. Like, that's why we're doing it. We're not doing it to sort of bust tradition and to annoy a bunch of people because we don't have our precious prayer book anymore. It's actually to make what our founder desired to have happen, which I think if I read the Bible right, is exactly what should happen, is that the, the page goes into our heart and out of our mouth back to God. And it's this dialogue between us and God. And we almost forget that the page exists because the almighty God is before us in Jesus Christ giving himself to us, inflaming our hearts, right? That's part of the reason that we're thinking through all these things at Advent is precisely because we want to go back to this place where as we are a prayer book people, we with Cranmer 
aren't getting all up in the fussiness. I mean, I wrote in The Adventurer this past, uh, this past week of my encounter. I, I talked to a young woman after the service at the 11 o'clock several weeks ago. And she just, I, I looked at her, and she looked nervous. She looked like she was new. And so I, I asked her, like, how did it go? She said, well, this is my first time in Episcopal uh, worship. And I, I immediately knew when anybody says that, it's like, whoa. So I bet the worship service felt pretty crazy. She was like, and she just sort of looked like a deer, deer in the headlights because it was just sort of the, the, I didn't know what to do and what was coming next. And everyone suddenly st stood up and I'm like, what? Oh, okay. I'm supposed to stand, you know, and all that stuff, it, it, uh, it's, it's confusing to the newcomer and it's a hard in, but we'll hear about that in a little bit actually with Cranmer as well. So out of necessity, there must be some rules. Therefore, certain rules are here set forth, which as they be few in number, again, comparatively, Cranmer says, my rules are few in number. We're trying to, trying to make it so that they be plain and easy to understand. So here you have an order for prayer as touching the reading of Holy Scripture, much agreeable to the mind and purpose of the old fathers. Again, he's pointing back to this connection with the historic church and a great deal more profitable, and I love this word, commodious, roomy and comfortable, <laughs> than that which of late was used. So he's basically saying, we, just, we need something that's comfortable to work with so that we can actually get about the business of what worship is, which was the engagement and experience of the presence of Almighty God. Right? It is more profitable because here in this book are left out many things whereof some of those things in previous books that I, Cranmer, had to edit be untrue, some uncertain, some vain and superstitious, and is ordained nothing to be read in this book but the very pure word of God, the Holy Scriptures, or that which is evidently grounded upon the same. I don't know, if you guys are Bible readers, you will pick up on the fact that even when Scripture is not read, in our worship services. These words are very scriptural, if not scripture themselves, put into ways that we can speak them to God and God can speak them to us. Super cool, all right? And that in such a language and order as is most easy and plain for the understanding. Do you hear how much he's beating this? He wants us to be easy, plain, simple, understandable, both for the readers and hearers. It is also more commodious, both for the shortness thereof and for the plainness of the order. Comparatively, again, this worship service is really short and plain and ordinary and simple just so we can get through it to God, you know? And for that, the rules be few and easy. I mean, he's pointing this out again and again. Furthermore, by this order, the curates shall have no other books for their public service but this book and the Bible. You see, when people like me were leading worship, they had to carry around a library of books, you know, plop it down and kind of flip through them because the missile had so many different books that they had to work through to be able to, to preach and teach and lead worship just through a service. There's lots of flipping going on, right? Lots of flipping. So, and where heretofore there hath been a great diversity in saying and singing in the churches within this realm, you know, some following the Salisbury use, and some are Hereford use, and some the use of Banger, and some of 
York and some of Lincoln. He's basically saying in, in England, we're using so many different sort of templates for worship. Every city is kind of using its own thing. Now and henceforth, all the whole realm shall have but one use. I mean, isn't it kind of cool as Episcopalians that you could maybe go to another church across the country and still get the same structure of a worship service? And he's saying there's something very beautiful about us being unified around the word of God. And so instead of all these disparate uses, wouldn't it be awesome if we all had one use? And we all had one thing to hear from God and speak back to God. And this is, this is the funny part, the punchline. And if any would judge this way more painful, because all things must be read in the book, whereas before, by reason of so often repetition, they could say many things by heart, if those men will weigh their labor with the profit in knowledge, which daily they shall obtain by reading upon the book, they will not refuse the pain in consideration of the great profit that shall ensue thereof. He's basically saying, I know that you guys have the old style memorized, right? And you love the old style, but I am telling you, this one's better. And if you just work hard through it, you'll come out on the other side, and I promise it'll be more glorious for all of us. A great prophet shall come from all the pain of thy labor, right? You hear that kind of language going on. And so from this preface, I want to ask if we could just glean seven, because it's a holy number, seven insights from Cranmer's preface and Cranmer's idea of what worship could be like in this 21st century, just as it was in the 16th. The first thing we'd say is, you know, right at the beginning, I pointed out that he called it the divine service. You and I you might use this word a lot, worship service, or this phrase a lot, worship service. And we think of it as an event. Like when I talk about the worship service, I mean it's sort of that event, that thing that we all go to, right? It's a thing that we all attend. We all go to the worship service, right? Um, we forget that the word has import, that it is actually something where serving goes on. Someone is served, Right? The reality is, a lot of us think that we're supposed to go to worship to serve God because, you know, God demands our service, and so I need to check that service box and go to serve God that way. And the Reformers liked to use this phrase, Luther liked to use it, Cranmer liked to use it, the divine service. Why? Because worship is where God serves us. Worship is where God gives Jesus to us in plentiful bounty, in sermon, in song, and in the sacrament. He just gives Jesus to us over and over again. It is where God is the waiter and serve actually himself to us in Jesus Christ in the gospel. That's the whole reformational concept of worship, is that whereas medieval Roman worship was there to go to check a box so that God would love me more, because I was one of the faithful ones, and I have a position in heaven as a result of this. The Reformers understood worship not as human service first and foremost, but divine service. It was the place where God gives Jesus to us, where broken, weary, wounded people burned by the church. And believe me, 
In the 16th century, there were lots of people feeling burned by the church, but not knowing how to get out of it because the church had a stranglehold on culture with their burning. And the reformers said, we need to unleash this and set this free because the only way human beings know, love, and serve God and one another is through God first serving them through his divine love, which happens first and foremost in the worship service, which is why you saw the reformers in Germany, in Switzerland, in Italy, all over the place. When they were reforming doctrine, they could not think of reforming doctrine apart from reforming worship. You see, the Reformation was just as much about worship as it was about doctrine. And in fact, the two aren't so easily divisible. And it's because they believe worship's supposed to be a place where broken people come and God serves them something that fills them up and strengthens them. And that something, that capital S something, is Jesus, right? That's the idea. Secondly, we heard worship as rooted in tradition and relevant in application. Rooted in tradition and relevant in application. So we heard Cranmer time and again pointing to the fact that we need to go back to something that wasn't tangled up in the webs of what worship has become. We need to go back to something that the early church understood and grasped. But interestingly, you'd think that that move would be, let's do everything in Latin. Let's do everything in Greek. Let's do everything just the way they did. When the reality is, Cranmer edited quite a lot. When the reality is, Cranmer took things and moved them into English and put them into the common common speak and reality of that day. His desire for worship was that it would be relevant, that it would be something that even though it was rooted, it was somehow always moved through a filter of translation to a certain culture in a certain day. And I dare say that's, that's part of the tension that we always need to be living in, which is why there's a reality to we somehow... Uh, as, as the prayer book over history was revised, this is the cry that's a very Cranmerian cry, which was, we need to always be rethinking the prayer book through the lens of our culture. Now, of course, of course, that can be a very dangerous enterprise when one is not thinking through the lens of, of both culture and scripture, the Bible in one hand, the newspaper in another, you know? And so Cranmer was all about keeping both of those things in tension, you know, which is why when we conceive a worship, Cranmer's vision is that it's not so capitulated to culture that it has no sense of being historic and tethered to the church of the past. Not just for history's sake, but for the fact that when we gather for worship, more people are there than we see. The saints who have gone before us, the people of God, and when we engage in the forms and the structures of worship, that those people engaged in, all of a sudden we find ourselves caught up in the worship that they were caught up in. And we find in the language of our creed, the Holy Catholic Church, we find ourselves connected to the church universal. We find ourselves tethered, worshiping right alongside them. And that's a great, huge, big army, the church triumphant, that the English reformers, the church militant, us, will one day join the church triumphant. We will be there with them. And that was that whole idea that worship is is part of this big community enterprise. So even as we're part of our local community, we're part of our transnational, you know, global, transtemporal reality of worship. Number three, worship as common prayer. I mean, this, this is part of the title of our book. 
and yet we may not realize what it fully means. The word common simply means it's of the people. It's ordinary. You know, the book of ordinary prayer. Just book of Joe Schmo prayer, right? That's how we could describe this thing. It's supposed to be connected to, to my reality. It hits me where I'm at. You know, as Cranmer said, such language spoken to the people in the church as they might understand. Most easy and plain for the understanding. And so, I know that you feel this tension right now. Because even our book of common prayer has words that we don't just throw around anymore in our culture, right? And so you can sympathize. You can at least sympathize with the folks who said we need to have liturgies in our language, you know? Because this almost, even though it's in English, sounds like a foreign language to me, right? I mean, who says oblation anymore, right? It's that kind of stuff that feels foreign. And so there is an impulse and a tension in our own tradition that's in the title of our very book that says, it is prayer, it is historic, it is rooted, but it is common. You know, it's connected. Common also means simple, book of simple prayer. Kremer was always pointing at that, the number and hardness of the rules. You know, and he was interested in the book being short and plain and for that the rules be few and easy, right? He was wanting this thing to be a light burden, not the way this, uh, this girl looked after coming out of worship, you know? And again, Cranmer would say, there's a learning curve there, but after the learning curve, this thing should be easy. This thing should actually flow out of you quite naturally. And perhaps for many of you who have grown up in a prayer book tradition, it does, which is awesome. It's where you want to get, right? The word prayer isn't inconsequential either. Do you realize that oftentimes people older than our generation thought of worship in its totality as prayer from beginning to end? That even though in worship we had these moments where we kneel and we say these prayers and we had these amen things, that even in the non-amen prairie parts, it's prayer too. That from beginning to end, when we open the service, God is speaking and we are responding. God is speaking and we are responding. It's this dialogue. That's what prayer is. God talking to his people and his people talking back to him. The gifted response, you know? That's what it is. Cranmer imagined that all of worship from beginning to end, from start to finish, would feel like one long prayer session. I know it doesn't always feel like that, but that's the vision for it. That's the vision for what worship can feel like. And so, of course... Worship as no pain, no gain, right? I want to read it again. If any would judge this way more painful, because of all the things that must be read in the book, whereas by reason of so often repetition, they could say many things by heart, if those men will weigh their labor with the profit and knowledge, which daily they shall obtain by reading upon the book, they will not refuse the pain, in consideration of the great profit that shall ensue thereof. I will tell you all that I, uh, maybe like many of you, am an experienced worshiper. I've been in and led or participated in almost every kind of Western worship context. Evangelical megachurch worship services, 
traditional Baptist worship services, traditional Pentecostal worship services, modern charismatic worship services, arena-sized worship concerts, house church worship gatherings, Roman Catholic masses, Eastern Orthodox divine liturgies, mainline liberal Protestant worship services, a cappella exclusive psalmody Puritan-style reformed worship services. I have worshiped in almost every kind of denomination Methodist, Presbyterian, Lutheran, Wesleyan, Dutch Reformed, Evangelical Free, non-denominational, interdenominational, post-denominational, yo mama nominational, Obama-rama national. I participated in all these kinds of things, right? I will say this, pound for pound, English prayer book worship, understood and utilized in the spirit and the heart of Cranmer and the English reformers, is up there with the best. It really is up there with the best. And if you take my class, I will try to exegete that for you and show you why it very much fits a, a real passionate, heart-filled, Jesus, Christ-centered bestness of worship. But the question, why doesn't it feel like it? Because Cranmer tells us it takes some work. It takes some work. The best doesn't mean easy. And that's hard because we are people who have a heart for those who have not heard the gospel. We have a heart for those burned by the church and a heart for the city of Birmingham. And we're always thinking of ways that we can make our church more welcoming to those who are different from us, from the outside. And the reality is our worship is a hurdle, you know? It's a hurdle. And we're not necessarily saying, so let's get rid of the hurdle. Other traditions, other concepts have said that. That's not an option for the Advent. That's not in our interest. But we do. We as a people need to think about how can we make this easier for ourselves and for one another to enter in. How do we help people? Maybe it's just by sympathizing with a girl coming out of a worship service with, yeah, I know it's hard. I promise, though, if you stick with it, there's going to be some Sundays where you're a ball of tears because of what God is doing in your heart in those moments. I will tell you, today I felt a little distracted for a bunch of reasons in worship at 9. Sound system was funky. We're working on it. Pray for us. Lord, have mercy. All right? Um, my kids were the usual amount of disruptive, erupt eruptive behavior, you know? And so I wasn't just... The liturgy wasn't just flowing out of my heart, you know, in this great emotional moment. I wanted it to. But every once in a while, just like the hymn says, sometimes a light surprises the Christian while he sings, you know. And during Deborah's sermon, all of a sudden, this is this bolt, and I started, I started crying just thinking about Jesus. And I will tell you, our worship gives us the framework to have more of those moments because it gives us the only thing that actually allows for the heart to be beaten into submission, the law, and then raised to new life, the gospel. Our worship gives that, those words to us in spades. And I wouldn't trade it for anything. I wouldn't trade that hurdle for anything. But we need to be sensitive to those for whom it's really, really hard. Worship is saturated with scripture. One stat, it's estimated, it's hard to say, but it's estimated that two-thirds of our prayer book, this is the non-parts of our prayer book that actually have scripture written in them. Two-thirds of it is scripture itself. 
Two-thirds of it are directly taken as quotations. And Cranmer, the beautiful, uh, the beautiful architect that he was, grabbed these scriptural quotations and put them and placed them into ways that we can pray them to God. And I will tell you, I believe in the power of the Word of God, that it doesn't come back void in its form in the liturgy, in its form when it's read by an ordinary broken human being that stutters, and its form preached by an ordinary broken human being that stutters. I believe that that's the way God works, and that's the way God revitalizes people and brings people back from the dead. So crazy as it is, the most outrageous miracle possible, the resurrection of a human being, happens through these ordinary meeting, me, means simply because the word of God is present. And God says, I'm going to use that to do extraordinary, miraculous things in the hearts of people. And that's why Cranmer said, we need to get back to that because I believe in that. I don't believe in all the other rules. I don't believe in all the other things. I believe that human beings are transformed and resurrected by the word of God. So let's fill up worship with it, right? Worship with a lively faith. Oh, this phrase, lively faith, is an awesome phrase used in the Articles of Religion, used by the English Reformers a lot. Did you know that they conceived a worship that was supposed to be passionate? They conceived a worship that was supposed to feel alive and energized, not rote and boring? That somehow, as, we were, as we're going through the book, as we're hearing things spoken to us, as we're praying back to God, this is supposed to feel alive. Like Cranmer really believed that. So much so that he, he, he wanted it to be full of heart, more, as he said, inflamed with the love of true religion. That their hearts and spirit and mind have been edified. And then he meant it this way, too. Lively means fruitful and productive. That means that worship actually produces something in the people that you hear in our prayers. Oh, God, fit us for good works. Make us ready to do those things. You know, produce in us something that helps us to love you more and love neighbor more. The word of God does this. This is this lively faith. And finally, worship. And I, you, if you take the class with me, this is what I'm going to harp on more than anything. Because this is what's confused, honestly, by the last two revisions of the American prayer book. 79 and 28. This thing got really shoved to the background, I will tell you. Uh, I've been reading and studying basically a whole century's worth of people writing about liturgy in the Episcopalian tradition. You don't hear them emphasizing what I think was the top of Cranmer's list here, and very much a reformational notion, that worship, to be powerful, is supposed to highlight the fact that it's 100% God and none of me. And thankfully, a lot of it's left in our prayer book. But some of it has gone missing, I will tell you. Some of it has gone missing. And it's because that this, this doctrine that Cranmer held, held uh, strongly, which I will just say is justification by faith alone. This doctrine that Cranmer held was the filter through which he did everything. The filter through which he created it. And I want to show you this one thing. Just by way of one example. The collects that he took from the tradition and then edited them, watch this. Here's the original collect that he took. And again, it was in Latin, but here's the English translation of the Latin. I know it's small. O God, from whom all holy desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto us the same peace which the world cannot give, that our hearts, being obedient to thy commandments, and the fear of our enemies taken away, 
our time may be peaceable through thy protection by Christ our Lord. See, Cranmer's filter of all God and no me was so thick that this prayer was not good enough. This is how he amended it, and I underline the emendations. O God, from whom all desires, all good counsels, and all just works do proceed, give unto... He didn't want to just say us. He wanted to make sure that we were put in a subservient position. Give unto thy servants that peace which the world cannot give. And then instead of saying that our hearts being obedient to thy commandments, saying, look at what we can do for you, God, that our hearts may be set to obey thy commandments. That means even my obedience only comes when you give it to me, God. And also that by thee, we being defended from the fear of our enemies. We're not, we're not strong enough to withstand our enemies, but you, our defense, are strong enough. May pass our time in rest and quietness through, not just, not, I'm not just going to say by Christ our Lord. I'm going to say through the merits of Jesus Christ, our Savior. You see how much he's beating this reformational horse, you know? He's whipping it from the back because he sees that we're, we're just filled with the old Adam that loves to think old Adam-y thoughts about ourselves, loves to love ourselves, and to seize on every opportunity to say, look, God, look what I'm doing for you. Cranmer's justification filter was so thick, so stringent, that he would not let this stuff pass through. And this permeates his 1552 liturgy like crazy. All right, any questions? Yes. Um, I just wanted to know what he used as, uh, to translate. Did he use Latin, Greek, Hebrew when he was doing translation? Good. Um, well, there were all sorts of, the liturgy was mostly in Latin. Uh, but at that time, there was a, a revival of humanism. And humanism uh, at that time had, had these basic ideas. Um, and those basic ideas were, let's go back to the original languages for everything. So at Cranmer's time, there was this resurgence of interest in, in the historic languages. So there was lots of Latin and Greek translation. And Cranmer was sort of listening to the received Latin liturgies, but piecemealing all kinds of things from both Latin and Greek. Yeah. And some things from, that had been translated already by Luther into German and other things like that. Yeah. Was there any revision between 1652 and Were there any revisions between 52 and uh, 28? Yes, there were. Significant reissuing in 1662, but the prayer book kind of held from 1552 after Bloody Mary did a bunch of crazy things. Uh, all the way to 1662. And those revisions in 62 were pretty minor. But they came about because of the rise of the Puritans and the dialogue between the Church of England and the emerging Puritans within the Church of England. Yes. I just wanted to say that, you know, it, all that you have just said confirmed us. We've come from a sort of uh, a non-traditional church in Florida, We've gone back to our roots. We've brought up Episcopalian, but how wonderful the service is. And what you brought up as far as it not being about me, but being about God and the scriptures throughout the service, well, that's how we, it hit us straight when we came here to the right. Advent, that that is so significant. And that I have been to other churches that, that that has been rejected. And it was very interesting to hear you say that, that 
you know, everybody has rejected that and that scripture does reign. And right. Jesus, and that's, it was just lovely to hear you confirm how we immediately felt when we came here. So it's, it's very obvious, especially if you've been out of the water for a while, when you jump back into the water, how much you realize, gosh, I, I missed hearing that word about Jesus. That seems pretty important. <laughs> you know, um, I miss hearing that it, it really is the work of God in my life, right? Um, and that's awesome. I don't think it only has to, uh, has to be the prayer book, but I do think Cranmer would say to all the worshiping traditions, figure out in your traditions what it means to have this kind of filter on it, right? But thankfully, the prayer book's preserved it for us. Pretty important, yes. So uh, what do you say to that girl? And what do you say when you're us? And, you know, I have a heart for wanting people to come here. Yeah. Because I want them to hear what the Advent's preaching. Totally. And uh, I do get resistance of kind of, eh. Yeah, right. So what, what do you say? Right. Like, trust me. I promise it's awesome. You know, well. That's kind of all I've got so far. Yeah, I mean, that's a good, that's a good question. I know. Uh, what I do is try to empathize and sort of jump into, I understand, like, sometimes we can be so in our little bubble here that we fail to realize how difficult it is. And simply the word of telling them, it's really difficult to kind of jump in. I'm sure it felt like you were flipping through stuff and not able to engage because, like Cramer said, you're so busy flipping, you're not even sort of there all the way. Even saying that is incredibly comforting to someone who's just gone through it and has PTSD. For the person that's trying to get in, to, you know, to acknowledge that on the front end and just say, you know, I will tell you, it's, it's kind of weird. It's sort of hard to jump into it the first time or the first 20 times. But on the other side of it, there's such a huge blessing. And I'd encourage you to come and sit by us. We'll kind of whisper you through it and, and help you figure out like what's going on. And it almost you almost need a little manual on it. I know it shouldn't be that difficult, but you know that's it's a little weird at first. But come join us. You know I I just try to sort of acknowledge, hey guys, it's gonna be hard. Um, but the friendliness and the permission that allows them to understand it's it's gonna be hard. But there's some payout on the other side. I, I think that's Cranmer's word. There's some payout on the other side. And, and I think that payout is the gospel. It's hearing that word uh, that we need to hear from these prayers. And I think that there's some things that we can do as leadership to improve and strengthen the way that that liturgy is felt and heard and responded to. And we're working on that. Uh, but great. I love those kinds of questions. Thank you. Yes. Okay, so... Um your, your word to your children or children that, that struggle with the liturgy and the you worship. You mean shut up? <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah, I, seriously, it's, it's hard. But I, I it feels like that in worship. Like, Shh. Yeah. Sorry, no, no, you, what's your question? What is your word? What is my word? Oh, gosh. Well, hopefully it's not shut up. Um, what is my word to my kids? It's trying to, well, I think the best thing that parents can do, this is, this is from my own experience as a kid, is... Let them watch you engage it passionately. Let them watch you weep during hymns. Let them watch you receive the word of absolution with desperation. Let them watch you pray and, and speak and sing these words through tears. Let them watch it move you. And then in due time, in due time, because the reality is when a heart is resonating, another heart cannot help but resonate. It's like a preacher who starts weeping in the pulpit. You almost can't help but weep, but that's the way we're designed to work. You know, this lively faith, it's very contagious, very contagious. And I know it's the hardest thing to do when our kids are screaming and they're squirming and they're knocking that 
that prayer bench up and down and knocking the books all around. They were doing that today. You know, I was like, God, help me just to be a little bit passionate. And then be forgiven that that's as good as it can get right now, you know. And then help them to grab on to the things that they can, the songs, the little responses, the prayers. Like, my kids now know the Lord's Prayer, and they can kind of get the creed. And so I see them light up, and I encourage them. And I try to, my wife says, shh, be quiet, Zach. But I try to, like, speak out the creed with lots of gusto, you know. Uh, and I was like, stop singing so loud. I'm like, this is lively faith, you know. So uh, that's what I really want to say, you know, to our kids is let them see you do that. Yes. Zach, I was that girl just a few years ago. Came from the Baptist church um, and actively participating in the service is amazing for somebody like me who was told to be still, be quiet, don't move, don't, you know. And it's just been a blessing. So just stay with it. It's just, it's a life changer. Persevere. That testimony goes a long way. I really think it does. Really think it does. One last question. Zach, I love this whole lively presentation. And I think for so many of us to, to this great point today, when we, we know what this worship in this church has done for so many of us in our hearts, it stings when we understand that the church feels unwelcoming. And, and that's the word. I mean, that, that to, especially to a younger generation. That is just, that is, you know, we hear it. And on the vestry, just so you know, there's been a fair amount of discussion about this and um, a, lot of, uh, a lot of thought going into it. And so this is an ongoing, engaging conversation. And the, your word today, I think, is so helpful, which is when someone struggles with it, when it feels unwelcoming, the way to make it welcoming is sitting in this room. You know? Yeah. We, we have this opportunity when someone is just to turn and, and, and welcome and, and engage and welcome them personally. And so, um, um, and, and I just encourage all of us to think when we see someone struggle or we see someone we don't know, just reach out and welcome them and engage them here. Because as we engage them, we keep them here, then, then, then the good news, you know, continues to do its work. And so thank you for what you're doing here. This it's is a good just, word. This is it's fun. Word. This is fun and exciting. And we love, nice. love your engagement. I really, these things, Advent, these are the hills that we want to die on right here, Right. And buried in the heart for the gospel is our liturgy, is a heart for our liturgy because we believe the gospel is there, right? But these are the hills we want to die on. So we need to ask as Advent, what things do we need to let go? And that's a good word. And I think Cranmer would have us ask that question as a church. Like, what things can we let go for the sake that these hearts might come to the fore and that other people might experience and know the Jesus that we experience? in this time. Thank you all. 11 o'clock is about to start, so hustle, hustle.